Greetings, little one. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Bad witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt. What's thou like to live deliciously? Got better. Dost thou comprehend? Welcome to Real Magic, the podcast at the crossroads of real witchcraft and Hollywood magic, where paganism and the supernatural meet their reflections in movies and television, and where we talk about what real magical or life lessons we can learn from fictional witches from 100 years of moving pictures. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Hello there, witches and weirdos. Welcome to episode six of the Real Magic Podcast. I am your host, Jessica Mason, and I'm happy to welcome you back after our first two-week hiatus. Now, I think a lot has happened in the last two weeks. We've had about 17 elections, it feels like, but things are on the upswing, let's hope. But there is still a lot of work to do in our country, and so I'm really excited to be talking today with Lilith Dorsey about the movie Eve's Bayou. Now, this is a movie that deals with voodoo, African traditional religions, and family trauma and struggle, but it's also with these topics we're going to be talking about systemic racism and the way that voodoo and African traditional religions are portrayed in media, and there is no better guest to do this than Lilith Dorsey. She is the author of the Voodoo Universe blog and several books. Her latest is Water Magic from Llewellyn, as well as earlier this year she released Orisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens with Wiser Books. I loved Orisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens. It's one of my favorite magical books I've read this year. It was so fascinating and I was so excited to talk with Lilith because not only is she an amazing magical practitioner and author, she has a background in anthropology and film, so she was an amazing guest. So please enjoy our talk about Eve's Bayou with Lilith Dorsey. Memory is a selection of images, some elusive, Others printed indelibly on the brain. Each image is like a thread. Each thread woven together to make a tapestry of intricate texture. You drive him away. The summer I killed my father, I was 10 years old. I saw Daddy. What? Daddy and Mrs. Moreau. What's wrong with her? Oh, she'll be. So, welcome, Lilith Dorsey, to episode six if i'm counting right <laughs> of real magic thank you so much for um joining us i think you're one of the most like credentialed authors we've had on this podcast so far oh thank you it's such a great pleasure to be on you know i mean i, I got my degree my undergrad in film production from nyu and my grad in cinema studies so I really don't get to talk about films as much as I would like. So this is really a, a labor of love for me. Yeah, you're like the perfect guest to talk about movies and magic and the occult and how they're in movies. I'm so excited. I hope this isn't the last time we have you on. I want to have you back on for oh, many yes. things. Yes, yes. So today we're talking about Eve's Bayou, which is a movie I had not seen. So I just watched it and fascinating film so what inspired you first off to pick this as a film to talk about in terms of how it specifically portrays voodoo and African traditional religions which is what we're talking about today well I think it's groundbreaking for so many different reasons you know I know that practitioners when you ask them oh okay what's a good movie to watch you know and I grew up with people making jokes about Angel Heart or you know yeah <laughs> live and let die and and all of these like very you know iconic portrayals but not very anything anybody would recommend let's just put it that way if they were wanted to be serious about the thing and and it has its problems but I think it just the way it was shot we've got Cassie Lemons who I absolutely adore who at that time was the first black female filmmaker to make a feature Hollywood film which I think is such an amazing distinction you know it's back in 87 right and uh is I was 87 still in, or 97 97 I'm sorry I'm oh, numbered I'm whatever transposy <laughs> it should have been it was 87 the very beginning. 
It was the very beginning. And, you know, I got out of school. Oh, geez. Let's see. I was at NYU right after Spike Lee left. So that tells you how old I am. That's probably why I have 87 in my head. But there was nothing. There was nothing for us out there, you know. So for this to have actually made it to mainstream, to have had a Black woman director, to really be a lot of firsts, I think that's why I wanted to pick it. And also, it's just such a beautiful film. It really yeah. Was. For those who haven't seen it or who have not seen it in a while, it is sort of a generational ex- examination of like memory and trauma and abuse and growing up. It's about this uh, African American family in Louisiana. And I think the, is it the 50s or 60s growing up with? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of somewhere in there, like, you know, in the early 60s, late 50s. That's how I feel like I position it. Yeah. Yeah. And the Samuel Jackson is the patriarch of this family. He's got three kids. One of them is 14. The other one, his other daughter, Eve, is 10. And it's about his relationship with his kids. And there is an allegation of abuse. And the way Eve deals with that is she basically ends up causing her father's death. Spoilers, by the way. Sorry. But that's the first line in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. watched the trailer again. It was like, you know, the summer I was 10, I killed my father. Put it all out there. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not like that it happens, it's how it happens. And voodoo is involved in this, but it's also about like family trauma and family saga. And so it's a really multi layered, interesting movie. And yeah, it's very much kind of like the first of its kind, I think, because it was this first african-american woman director um i don't think there were many other movies before this focusing on like african-american girls and their adolescence especially yeah, in that era really, yeah not really in that way i mean the only other thing we had was julie dash's daughters of the dust you know and that was the first one ever but it was an independent film so it was something that was a lot harder to see and certainly did not get the mainstream attention and play that this did you know, so I, I think, and again, because that was, it's just a very different story. You know, I mean, it, it talks about different things, but it, it's just very different. This, I think, is more, really tells a story. It really gives you a solid narrative to follow, and it's intriguing, and, uh, you know, but we'll go into that later. <laughs> yeah. So what did, like, we want to talk about on this podcast, you know, there's always sort of dual inquiries with movies. Is like, is it an accurate portrayal of the magical practice that it's give that it's showing in the screen and you know the second question is whether or not it's accurate is it entertaining and so let's talk the first question first like do you think as a voodoo practitioner and the author of the voodoo universe blog like how does this rank in terms of accurate portrayals of voodoo because there's sure are a lot of inaccurate ones as you said <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of inaccurate ones. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we do have the Voodoo Universe blog. That's the most popular Voodoo blog in the universe, actually. And I really didn't think that was going to happen when it started. And uh, whatever, I just won Best Blog Post of the Year Award. The Congratulations. So, yeah, I, I never win anything. Like, so whatever I do, it's like, what? Like, they must have counted wrong or something. So, uh, but I, I think the accuracy, it's weird. It's not really voodoo in it. It does get portrayed as voodoo. Again, maybe that's why I was thinking it had an earlier year. But 97 was still these distinctions between voodoo and hoodoo and voodoo and all the different ATRs were not made and asserted to the extent that they are now. So I think that, yes, it's the, even one of the lines in the film, she talks about voodoo. But I think really that's just what people were calling it because they didn't realize the nuances that actually exist in the tradition because this is a suppressed religion that was illegal for hundreds of years. It's the religion of enslaved people that were whipped, beaten, killed, all the rest of it for practicing it. So I think there's a lot of secrecy surrounding it too. So now for me, the practices in it are less voodoo and more hoodoo practices or conjure practices, things like that. Both the main voodoo priestess, El Zora, and Moselle, who ha- does psychic readings and things like that. Those are more seen as hoodoo practices 
or even witchcraft practices, if that yeah. makes sense. It's a lot. I mean, bone reading is something that's done, but Alzora does it with cat bones, which is not something that you would see in any of the African traditional religions. It would be, you know, hoodoo has a lot of sort of, you know, make do with what you have kind of elements in it because yeah, again, which these makes people sense. are isolated <laughs> and you know, uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged in every single way. So yeah, you might do the readings with the cat bones or you might do, you know, some of these other things because that's what you had at hand. But that said, I think that almost everybody I know knows someone like the El Zora character, like this woman who, well, now that I live in the swamp, I can make jokes about living in the, being the voodoo <laughs> lady that lives in the swamp. But, you know, there's people, it's, it's something that people sort of recognize. You know, we say we have stereotypes because there's a teeny bit of truth in there. So I think that, yes, it's a stereotype, but there's also a teeny bit of truth. A lot of people knew a root woman or a conjure woman or a, you know, hoodoo witch, whatever you wanted to call them, you know, back in the 50s, back in the 60s that lived out in the middle of nowhere aware that you would go to for readings or spells or conjure and they had weird strange jars and things like that. I, I was joking with my priestess today, Priestess Miriam from the Voodoo Spiritual Temple. She brought out some Four Thieves vinegar that looked like a potion to me. I <laughs> All my younger friends used to say to me, Lilith's a witch, she makes potions, you know, when they were four or five. And I was like, I love this little idea of what they think magic is, just making these big jugs of potions, like something out of a Disney movie. But it happens sometimes you have to yeah. do it you know that's that's how it comes down so I think that there are a lot of things and that are realistic in it and I think it teaches us the really important magical lesson of be careful what you wish for which is really an undercurrent throughout the whole film and I think we see Definitely. this in a lot of different traditions but certainly in voodoo and hoodoo and the ATRs that there's reasons that you wait in order to do magic, or there's reasons that you schedule your magic to be, okay, my godmother used to say, the best possible for my most highest good, not I want A, B, C, and D. I want the best possible for my most highest good, because that way it leaves it open for the universe to provide you that. Not, you know, maybe if you got that job, there would be some sort of, you know, shooting or something the next week. Or if you got that man, he would be terrible for you and cheat on you and give you some disease, you know. So it's we leave it up to the universe rather than try and change some specific thing, which is part of the lesson of the film. You know, when you try and solve these problems through magic by yourself, sometimes the it works, but the consequences are not what you wanted. So I guess that said, the practice of it is a little shoddy and Hollywood because it's a Hollywood movie. Yeah. But uh, I think that a lot of the basic tenets of what magic is like are really in play in, in the film. I also think it's interesting because my impression, especially with ATRs and voodoo and hoodoo, is that those were very much, as you see in this movie, like the women more specifically that you would go to as like a healer somebody who was in the community when that community was underserved. And you see that really interesting contrast early in the movie because there's the one woman who goes to Moselle and she also gets help from the doctor. And it seems like Moselle is providing her with more help than Samuel L. Jackson's character. And so you see like the role that these women, both Elzora and Moselle play in their communities seems really accurate and important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, they didn't have access to adequate medical care. And, you know, as a Black woman, I know that a lot of times we still don't have access to adequate medical care, you know, listen to Black women. And this is a challenge that they have. So they learned things that had to do with roots and herbs and, you know, okay, if I wash this with, I wrote an article once about paint blue, which is the color that you would paint your house to keep away the spirits. But it also contained the same kinds of, you know, blue dye that was designed to keep away insects and designed to keep away, you know, bacteria and viruses and everything like that. So it really had a dual purpose. Yes, maybe it kept away ghosts, but it also very practically kept away disease giving insects and, and all these other things from your home. And they still sell it today. Yeah, so. it's sort of like I did an article a few months ago about uh, silver and like how people were selling colloidal silver to like prevent coronavirus, which is silly but silver does have antibacterial properties and so the fact that 
for centuries people have used silver in terms of purification is like that's how silver scientifically works is viruses and bacteria don't survive as long as silver so that's why we have this association and the way these things grow up together is really fascinating yeah I love that you know what I mean I I, I eat on silver spoons just for that exactly reason. that's and why I love we have silver fact that people would turn blue and that's why they called them blue bloods because they were consuming too much silver oh great yeah, Whoops. that's where that comes from. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And it's just interesting um, where all those things kind of join together. There are so many like specific things that were interesting in the way they depicted the practices here. Um, and you're, for Elzora, she has that white face paint. And I was wondering like if that has any basis in anything, because I'm thinking about the cover of your book, which has got... Oh, the wonderful book, Orisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens, which has a woman with white face paint on it, but it's not the same. It's very patterned and it's not a big, just face of white. It is. And it's a, I mean, it's a weird thing. You know, when people, especially for Hollywood or mass media, sort of have these, even for the cover, sort of have these things they sort of like, oh, well, this is African or this comes from this place. I mean, no, it's not strictly that kind of thing. I have seen people, uh, well, actually, it's a perfect time to talk about it right now because we're in November, like the days immediately following Samhain, so November 1st, 2nd, 3rd, that's traditionally in Haitian Vodou when they would celebrate the Fet Gede. And the Fet Gede is sort of an ancestor celebration for the spirits that don't have any kind of names, the ones we don't remember, all those people back throughout time that we need to honor and, and are responsible for us being here today, but we've forgotten them. So it's really, it's it's a nutsy celebration when you get a Gede celebration because they're very lusty, they're very sexualized, they smoke cigars, and very often people will put on that kind of white makeup. It is said, they're said to be led by the Baron Samdi, which a lot of people are now familiar with yeah. in that kind of top hat and uh, sunglasses with one eye out so he can see into both worlds at the same time. So you get this kind of those images as well. And I think it's, it's an ancestor celebration really that they dress up like that. But walking around like that every day, that wouldn't happen. The ones on the cover of my book, that I found out they were also on the cover of like some really famous magazine, that artist. And I, I, I'm happy my publishers found it because it looks great. But no, we don't really, spoiler, okay. we don't really paint up like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just, I'm like, that didn't seem like something. <laughs> it looked funny, cool though, in the I movies, like 100, though. A hundred years from now, are people going to see it and be like, oh, yes, this is what they did all the time, you know? And I'm like, no, not really. So... <laughs> Yeah, no cat bones, no face painting, but yeah, the no. more it's the more functional aspects of magic that it's more sure accurate. Yeah, in. yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the? There seems to be some like classism between Elzora and Moselle. Definitely, the different ways they approach their magic and their gifts and their different approaches to voodoo. Definitely, I think in a way that. There's always been a hierarchy within psychic services, you know, and somebody who's willing to use those kinds of things that Alzora uses roots and cast spells and do things like that, that that's always sort of seen as like a lower kind of of magic and something like Moselle does with the readings and stuff like that is seen as higher. I mean, obviously they were from different socioeconomic classes to start with, but this is something you get all throughout the ATRs, you know, you get a very strict kind of system and it also goes across color lines too, less so now, but but definitely traditionally in places like Brazil, where you would get people, the, you know, the European descendants doing things like spiritism, like Kardec and having seances and doing those like sort of direct communication with spirit moments where the, you know, people who had darker skin would be out in the streets leaving offerings and, and, you know, singing and drumming and things like that. So you still do get that to some extent, I think. And I think even, you know, I've had people say to me, oh, well, you know, it's okay because you're a witch, you don't do voodoo or you don't do Santeria or Lakumi, you know, like one is better than another, you know, like that, that they've put that hierarchy in their own heads. And it makes me sad that to see that even in, you know, this day and age that people would still try and have a, a hierarchy about something like that. 
Yeah. And like the way that I think voodoo specifically has been badly portrayed in movies definitely has a lot to do with systemic racism in general. And it's, you know, not that witchcraft in general is well portrayed, but I think that at least witchcraft sometimes gets to, you know, witches get to be the hero once in a while, or at least, you know, the sexy magical ones. And, you know, very often voodoo is portrayed as something super scary and super creepy and in this movie it's not so that's you know a win for this movie (laughs) no it's true it's true and it's also something that's secretive but you know if you go looking for it you can find it which I think is interesting as well and something I did like about this movie yes it's it it, to me it was empowering you know I mean obviously she (laughs) regrets what she does you know little Eve at 10 years old, but in a way it's, I I think she had so little power in the rest of her life, you know, middle child and, and, you know, grownups had their struggles and dramas and her sister had her struggles and dramas and her little brother was just her annoying little brother (laughs) as they are. (laughs) You tell him a big sister and that, you know, but for her, this seems like the first time that, you know, she makes a choice. She defies what the adults say. She tries to fix the situation for the family. And unfortunately, it ends up not going really well, but it does allow her to have her first, like, huge adolescent, you know, success act, even if it's not a win. It's she definitely accomplished something. And that's often how like magic focuses both in movies and in life as it is a way for people to claim their power, especially marginalized communities like women or people of color. Definitely, definitely. You know, and, and we see this a lot over and over again. So I'm just happy that we see it in this way. And, you know, this this movie passes the, well, I don't know what people want to call it. I've heard some people call it the DuVernay test, but where you can have a bunch of, you know, there's primarily black characters. They're not always necessarily talking about, you know, racial oppression or something like that. They're just having problems like people problems, as opposed to problems that are primarily racialized. And, And I think that that's important for representation. And that's another reason it was really groundbreaking in that way, because I, I can't, there, there weren't that many other Hollywood films that I can think of that had all black cast that wasn't primarily racialized about, you know, oh, here's a movie about Malcolm X or whatever, you know? Yeah, this movie was just about like the family and everything going on in that community, yeah. even though it was Louisiana in the 50s, 60s, whatever. It was not about the racism or Jim Crow or any of that. It was about yeah. the story. Which was new, yeah. Which was refreshing, is because those stories. I mean, they dealt told. with it, but they dealt with that alongside all the other things that they're dealing with it, which made it much more realistic for me. Because yes, obviously, you know, all black people and other people of color deal with this, but they also deal with all these other life problems that are attacking them. So it just seemed more like a well-rounded presentation to me as well. And I think like the inclusion of voodoo in the story also kind of makes that a more organic story because it's just another layer of the culture and the community it's not kind of portrayed as some weird fetishized thing it's just part of their lives yeah this is what they do you know this is the person who's selling the apples this is the person who's selling the voodoo you know it's like it's just another market stall just another day at the farmer's market you know get your pineapple steal a pineapple get some cat bone readings no it's true but it, it also seems very louisiana to me in that way you know that it's just sort of normalized i i my priest louis martinet who wrote the he co-authored the new orleans voodoo tarot he was a teacher here in the school system for many years. And he showed me this handout once that they give to the kids, like what to do if your home is infested by ghosts. Like they gave this to the kids in the public school. So, you know, in addition to, you know, fire safety, ghost safety, you know, so it it really here, it definitely does take on another character, you know, and it really is sort of ingrained in the people and they don't think of it as something weird or strange that it would be, you know, somewhere else. Yeah, I'm thinking about that um, great speech from Dixie Carter in Designing Women where she's talking about like, oh, in the South, we don't hide our crazy people. We, you don't ask if you have crazy people in your family, you just ask what side they're on. And <laughs> my mom's family is from Mobile, Alabama. And so 
that rings very true to everyone I've ever known in the South. Because it is just a bit, a bit different down there. It is a bit different. It's funny. I, I, when I was in school, I took a Southern Gothic film class, which, you know, obviously was right up my street. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, let's go, you know, (laughs) all of this stuff. And, uh, Betty Davis and, you know, (laughs) the old drunks and all that. But it was funny because he contextualized New Orleans as, yes, it's definitely South, but in a lot of ways, it's almost a third world country too, you know, Mm -hmm. because Louisiana operates on its own rules because it was a Spanish colony and a French colony and, you know, and English. And and there's been so many different people through here with over the years that it really does, I like to call it a gumbo. It really does come together like a gumbo. And there's a way in which it's weird and quirky and it shouldn't work, but it does. And and I think that's one of the things that I always got about the film, even though I hadn't, I guess, I mean, when I first saw the film, I'd probably only been to New Orleans maybe once or twice, you know, so it wasn't like now where I live here. So (laughs) now that I live in the swamp, it's a whole nother perspective, but not any less. I would definitely say that this film fits within like the Southern Gothic canon and it's a uniquely African-American addition to it. Yeah, it does. It does. A hundred percent. I agree. I agree. And there's so much about it. That's also kind of that got that Gothic, just like the heightened atmosphere of everything, you know, where they are delivering like these like deep monologues and with ghosts talking behind them. And so it's certainly very Gothic. It is, it is. And one of the things that struck me too about like the cinematography and this connection to the swamp and the water, you know, my Papa Culture show, we have the Papa Culture show, me yeah. and my co-host Jason Winsley. And uh, for my new book, Water Magic, we did a workshop on water magic in the cinema. And for me, this whole connection that they have to the water, that it's like, it's always right there. And it represents the dead and it represents, you know, secret knowledge and it represents healing and like all of those things are right there and present for them all the time because they're right there on the swamp I mean in the bayou it's Eve's bayou it's hers you know so it's it's just this energy that you get from being below sea level I can't explain it any other way you know Mm -hmm. I've been to Denver Mile High City I don't do well in heights I see I think I do well underwater (laughs) so this is where we are (laughs) right now And it really is a different energy. They call it tipsy, you know, and uh, Louisiana has definitely has its own energy. And it certainly is like that kind of gothic energy where they're kind of straddling life and death because these communities have in the past, like just been wiped out. And they've seen so much darkness and death in so many different ways, just because of the setting, because of natural disasters and just their history as well. There's so much there it is it's so it's so in between you know it's like you said it's it's just this crossroads this liminal in every single way I mean literally the ground you're on is not really ground you know I stick a shovel in the ground and it comes up like water and clay you know so there's there's nothing there (laughs) and some oyster shells there's nothing there it's like all built up by people trying really really hard you know And there's such a history of just like New Orleans is, you know, this spooky capital with, you know, you have Anne Rice books and you have all sorts of other New Orleans media that just sort of focuses on New Orleans and Louisiana as like this sort of other world within the United States that's so fascinating in pop culture in a broader sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think, you know, that's continued over the years and I'm really happy about that you know, that, that we've sort of stayed this locus of, of magic and witchcraft and mystery and voodoo and all of those things in this country, you know, and it really is celebrated here. Do you find like as New Orleans has become more of a focus in pop culture and how those things have become more popular that it's become like overly commercialized or cheapened or? It was always overly commercialized. Yeah, I mean, Mardi Gras. I'm speaking like a native right yeah. now, but uh that I, I think that you know it's or has it become more authentic for resources yeah. that's it it's always been competition for resources and it's not even really the people in the city it's it's more the tourists this is what they expect you know when I and that's why I titled the book what I did you know 
we practice voodoo. We practice voodoo because I wanted it to be a reclaiming. I belong to the voodoo spiritual temple because that's a place that was based in healing. And it's also been there. They just had their 30th anniversary, you know, oh. and uh, it's beautiful. I was there this morning. It's a beautiful place. And, but for them, that's if somebody went to new Orleans, they were going to look for voodoo. So where were they going to go? They'll go to the voodoo spiritual temple, even though what we do there is, so much more than just voodoo. And I think people don't realize that they come in and they think they can whatever and find out what voodoo is in five minutes. And like I was saying before we started, you can spend your whole life studying this tradition, even just the tradition in New Orleans and how it's practiced. And it's practiced slightly differently by each practitioner and it takes on the character of the city and it takes on the character of the water and it takes on the character of, you know, I have hundred plus year old oaks in my backyard, takes on the character of the trees and all of that together gets mixed together and it's constantly evolving and constantly changing. And it really is a beautiful thing, but it's interesting too, let's just put it this way. We certainly have uh, a lot of characters as I used to work for Dr. John, the jazz musician, as a dancer and choreographer. And he would talk about all the different, you know, voodoo people in the city and and him coming up over the years. And I think he's really, it was funny, we went to his memorial and obviously it was a very sad thing for all of us and the big memorial, the one that they put on the radio. And (laughs) one of the Neville brothers got up and he said, you know, if it wasn't for this man right here, there wouldn't be black and white musicians on stage in America. And it was like, I knew it, but it hadn't really clicked in my head until that moment, unfortunately, you know, when we were standing there at his memorial that he really did so much for race relations and equality in this country. It was amazing. But for me, he did an insane amount for voodoo. He was the first person to get out there and say, you know, I'm a voodoo practitioner. I'm a hoodoo man. I do all these things. And he sang about Grigri and he sang about Marie Laveau and he sang about all these amazing things. And he was just such a wonderful man. And in a way, I think that people could see him and it wasn't these other stereotypes that you're talking about. You know, he presented somebody that was genuine and bona fide, as they would say down here in every single way. So it wasn't about being sleazy and it wasn't about being sexualized and it wasn't about being, you know, evil or anything like that. It was about, you know, you do what you need to do and you do it beautifully and eloquently and uh, you give proper respect. Not long ago in New Orleans, Louisiana, named Marie Laveau. Believe it or not, strange as it seems, she made a fortune selling voodoo and interpreting dreams. She was known throughout the nation as the voodoo. And that even applies like the way that this movie is. It is very much doing the same thing. It is telling a really deep and hard story but it's also showing voodoo and it's showing this very specific community in a very specific way and but as a function of that it is helping with representation because it's just showing these things as they are and not as something to be you know looked at as an outsider it's showing them from an insider perspective yeah I think so and I think the fact that you know it's in the voice of Eve who's 10 I mean, if we, I come from the auteur school, so, you know, we've got Cassie Lemons at the helm, so she's got a very different understanding of it. You know, I think even the cast had a very different understanding of it. And I find that fascinating that this is how we can, you know, get through it and portray it. I do want to say this since we're talking about Little Eve and, and uh, Journey Smollett, she, yeah. I, we did a whole thing on the show about Lovecraft Country and she was saying for all of those scenes, no spoilers, but she felt like she was going to be corrupted and she had to <laughs> consult her pastor <laughs> before she did some of those scenes. Interesting. That's really interesting. And now I'm thinking about Eve's Bayou. I was like, what kind of impression of voodoo did she get as a 10 year old playing that role that then over time has now turned into her as a young woman being a devout Christian and still having this kind of inherent fear of things. 
Yeah, that's really interesting that that's kind of was her takeaway from this because it's definitely not voodoo itself is definitely not vilified or in this movie it is you know the actions and eve does two separate things that cause her father to die she you know does uh goes to elzora for a voodoo spell but she also like rats on him to the guy that ends up shooting him <laughs> yep 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 so she's got a, a lot of consequences there <laughs> Yes, she does. She does. Yeah. We can talk about Lovecraft Country, you know, we're done. Because I'd love to hear what you thought of that one, if you want to give a five-word review. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. I, you know. (laughs) So I'll definitely watch your Papa Culture episode on it, if you have one. Yeah, we're going to. It's going to be the, hopefully, if we get it in time, it'll be the year-end episode. So Excellent. I cannot wait to watch that. Because, like, that's one of those shows where, like, I don't know if I liked it, but I'm not really the person who gets to have an opinion on that show. I know it's hard. It's hard, you know, because I think that, and I think that even at the time that, that Eve's Bayou was seen similarly to the way that I'm talking about Journey Smollett reacting to Lovecraft Country, I'm, I'm sure there were a lot of people in the black church that did not like this portrayal at all. You know, and there's still a lot of tension, I think, in general between the church, even here in Louisiana and, you know, the witchcraft community and the voodoo community. I do an event here called uh, Hexfest. And the last few times we did it in person, there was insane protests by Christian groups and Catholic groups and things like that. And the funniest part, she took it down, but there was one person who said that they were they kept having flies land on their face and that was sent by the witches and the voodoo people presenting <laughs> at the event. And she was tired of our spy flies. <laughs> she was on to us. Did you did you guys send the ones that landed on Mike Pence in the debate? We started making those jokes again. Yes, we were like, oh, look, it's our spy flies again. Yay, they're still alive. Yes, yes, I know it was hilarious. But yeah, there's, but it's, I mean, and this has happened to me, you know, back in New York, too. I mean, I think there's still really a lot of traditional Christian fear and anger and hatred that manifests in protests. I mean, I've seen it, like I said, over and over again. So it there really still is that kind of divide, even now, unfortunately. And it's interesting, like, we can talk about sort of the spirituality of this movie, because, Moselle has that great speech kind of talking about like if there's a greater purpose to life and looking for like, you know, an answer from God at the end of her life. And there certainly seems to be a spirituality of this. And they don't really get into the spiritual aspects of voodoo, which you write so much about. And it's such an interesting for me dynamic in so many of those practices because there is there's so many different layers of deities and divinities. There's goddesses and orishas and um now words that i'm forgetting or will mispronounce oh, fine there's low i mean <laughs> yeah. Turn back Lo- yeah. Chicago, there's loa and you know in santo lakumi there's and ifa there's orisha and but a lot what i think what's lost too especially on a lot of people that come from witchcraft is that a good number of these people the practitioners also still believe in one god believe in monotheism you know in haiti they call it bandu and they would never not, de- you know, deny the existence of there being the one same God that the rest of the Christianity has. So I think that that's interesting that what's played out in reality, especially in the United States, is that there's a huge division between people who practice any kind of, you know, hoodoo, voodoo, voodoo, any of that, and Christianity, you know. Yeah, because I think that, like, for a lot of, like, witchcraft and pagan practitioners, you think of, like those things is very separate from Christian traditions, but that is not the case at all for ATR. No, no. We still incorporate a lot of it. I was talking about my work with Dr. John. We did some hoodoo spells when we were on stage at Bonnaroo to hex the then president. (laughs) I guess it worked. Good work. Good job. (laughs) That was a lot of fun. We get before we get on stage, he's like, no, we got to hex the president. I'm like, okay, yeah, (laughs) let's go. You know, needs must. That's it. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And uh, yeah. 
this and it's just like we're talking about like the layers and how things you know adapt like in your book you talk about my mom Brigitte who is well she's a Aloha but she's also like somewhat related to like Saint Bridget who is somewhat related to a Celtic goddess it's like it's so many layers of so many different things it is it is I mean I'm cautious somebody once said that I said they were exactly the same thing and I was like look I went to grad school I would never say anything is exactly the same thing (laughs) I would say it's similar or it's like it or it has you know qualities that are the same and and I think saying a granddaughter is the same as a grandmother (laughs) yeah yeah definitely it's it's like there was a huge influx of Irish you know you were talking about uh, Anne Rice. And when I first came to the city, I stayed with my priest, Lou Martinet. He used to have a voodoo B&B and he lived in the Irish Channel. And it was right down the street, like within, I think, four or five blocks of Anne Rice's house. So that's how she comes back into it. <laughs> but the Irish Channel was full of Irish people. And they obviously brought their own beliefs. They brought their worship of St. Brige with them and all those customs and all of those things. So there's obviously going to be some stuff that looks similar. You know, even if you look at the history, there's a lot of things that are very similar between traditional African religion and traditional Irish religion. I don't say Celtic because if I say that to an Irish person, they go, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> never mind. You're the Irish person. I'll shut up now. <laughs> I have a lot of good friends that are Irish, but, uh, so, but there are similarities. And I mean, I, I think, you know, it could be from a lot of different reasons, but so, uh, you know, you've got Irish people going to ceremony, you've got Irish people leaving offerings, you've got all of that happening the same time that the people in New Orleans that are practicing voodoo are worshiping, you know, Mama Brigitte. So there is, obviously going to be some things that get a little blended and I to me I don't see it as cultural appropriation because it's you know I'm an Irish person and I'm worshiping this way and you're sitting next to me and you're you know whatever you are worshiping Mama Brigitte in that way from the Haitian Vodou tradition and if you know people are side by side and discussing it and you know and this happened you know whatever we're talking about the 1800s so this happened hundreds of years ago so <laughs> it's not the same kind of situation that we're talking about now where you get all these people grabbing at the tradition and you know deciding to write books or make films or whatever about it that i think is really problematic yeah like there's like there's a big difference between like cultural appropriation and commodification versus cultural like the the natural blending and evolution of cultures and traditions and practices it just happens in humanity yeah and that's that's where I draw the line the commodification which I think is what the other reason why I picked this movie because at least I know Cassie Lemon's got some money for this movie you know like Black people got some money for this movie. And uh, she did go on to direct Harriet, which is the next thing she directed after this, which is a big, you know, leap in time there. (laughs) But she's still around. She's still around. It's the commodification, I think, where, you know, it's where it goes wrong, where it's, you know, white people trying to tell Black stories, which, or white people trying to sell Black religion or Black practices. I just don't think we should be doing that. Yeah, well, to me, I mean, I'm not trying to be selfish or anything like that. I'm just saying that if my book is sitting on the shelf next to, you know, a white practitioner's book, you know, chances are people will buy that book first. I don't know why, but that's what happens. I've seen it happen over and over again. And I honestly think that it's about time that we let Black people tell Black stories after all this time, you know, so... That to me is a thing. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it goes across, it goes across witchcraft. It grows across not just black stories, but like Asian stories and Latin, oh, sure. Latinx story. You know, I I have a whole rant I could go on about Mulan, which is oh, yeah. like, you could tell that movie was written by a bunch of white people who didn't understand anything about Chinese history or culture, or even the understanding of Chinese witchcraft, because they talk about witches a lot in that movie. And it's like, sure. That's she is not the force. Yes. <laughs> well, well, I come back, we could do a whole show on Disney, man. Like I remember going to the well, first time I was in Dublin, I went to the leprechaun museum right after it opened. <laughs> and they had this whole thing about the history of leprechauns in the movies. And they talk about Darby O'Gill and the little people. Have you ever seen this? I remember seeing it like on the Disney channel when I was like nine. Yes. 
Yes. So apparently Disney bought all the early like 1300s, 1200s texts with like, you know, written documents about leprechauns and put them in the Disney vault. (laughs) He actually owns owns, like all these ancient historical texts and locked them up. And I was like, wow, that's fascinating. I knew he was weird, but I didn't know he was that weird. Yeah. It's like, Oh man, Disney. I mean, th- yeah, we I, we will definitely have many episodes on okay some Disney because like like Princess and the Frog is an interesting. Uh, I mean, that's sort of a definitely a vilification of voodoo there. But we've also got yeah, it is. But you know, I mean, here we go again. I, I some of these things are so many of these things are problematic, you know. And this is something we go back to over and over again on the Papa Culture Show because. People want representation, you know, and at the time when Princess and the Frog came out, I was helping to take care of a young black girl who had never seen a Disney princess that looked like her, you know, so for her to have Tiana out there was just, you know, it brought tears to my eyes that she didn't have to compare herself to Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty like I did when I was young, you know, and it just makes me sad that that this is what we got you know, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of vilification of voodoo in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's also like the friends on the other side is such a great villain song because <laughs> it's that tension between like, is it accurate? Is it entertaining? And oftentimes I know, I know Dr. John has his song in there, you know, down in New Orleans. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I want to rewatch Princess. Now I want beignets actually. <laughs> Although he did have some, he did have some Disney stories. I, I won't, you know, use expletives or anything like that on your show. <laughs> so we can kind of talk about like just this movie as a movie, because it's very much like it's definitely like an independent, smaller film. And it has its own very distinct, very kind of um, unreal tone, almost like the the atmosphere of this movie is heightened and kind of liminal, kind of like childhood, really. It is, it is, you know, and it definitely appeals to the cinematographer in me and the filmmaker, you know, because back in the day, I made experimental films, which when I was in school in 1987, (laughs) let me tell you, nobody was making experimental films. So it was, it was a struggle. And, (laughs) but she really uses some of those experimental techniques, like I said, with the water, with the shot choices, with the montages, with all these dissolves. It's, it's like you almost don't know where you are because the dissolves are constantly bringing you in and out, the fading in and out of color and things like that. And when I was rewatching it in preparation for this show, it, what really struck me is how they tie those visual sequences to memory, which I think is beautiful. So in, in a way, like memory is like that. We get things that are dissolving in and out. And sometimes things are more in focus and less in focus. And sometimes it's hard to hold on to it the same way it's, it's hard to hold on to a memory. And I just thought it was beautiful the way that she employed all of those tactics and still managed to keep it in the confines of a narrative film. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not, which is one of the ways that there's there's problems with the linear structure when we talk about Daughters of the Dust. It's it's really in a lot of different places at once. And I'm not faulting that. I'm just saying I know that's hard for people to follow if they don't have a linear narrative. And this very distinctly has this linear narrative, but also allows you to be in between the years and with the narration. It allows you to be with even the music almost is is kind of like in between. It's like subliminal almost where (laughs) it's just sort of reminding you that there's other things there. There's other possibilities, other realms, other worlds and it's it's fascinating the way that they use monologues and the way they kind of have like some very slow scenes it's much slower pace than what we're used to nowadays and it reminded me a lot of like almost like a play or like some sort of like oh henry sort of story oh yeah yeah like it has that again that southern gothic feel Yes, I was going to say that. It has that Southern timing where everything, it's like it's hot and you can't move very fast. And, you, know. you can feel how humid it is. Yeah, yeah, I'll get there when I get there, you know. <laughs> so 
that's yeah I'm, I'm originally from Brooklyn so adjusting to the southern timeline of things is hard because we don't we don't do this oh well I'll get there when I get there share you know <laughs> like we don't what like, I'm going I have a lot of things to do <laughs> yeah New York to, to New Orleans it's definitely got to be a transition <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah yes. like I think a lot of people do it though it's funny I, it's, I ran into a friend of mine who uh, writes music books and he wrote a book called from Brooklyn to Bywater so I was like that's hilarious because I'm kind of near the Bywater and I know at least four other people who've moved during the pandemic from Brooklyn to Bywater so. oh wow yeah, it's got a lot of similarities. Yeah, it kind of goes even back to like what we were talking about, like the sort of otherworldliness of New Orleans, where the South, a lot of it just sort of seems in a different time. And time works differently there and in good ways and bad. Sometimes it's a bit behind the times in it terms does. of other things. It does. It's it's like everything works differently here, you know, time, space you know, <laughs> language, food, all of that works completely differently here. And I think she captures all of that in the film. She really does. She really does. Just this whole kind of different way of doing things, but also making it really familiar. Like you said, too, it's a family story. We can all identify. I was thinking of that scene where it's, you know, her mom and, and her aunties and the grandma, like all the women are getting together and annoyed. I think everybody can relate to that. <laughs> you know, it's like four mother posse is, is out for blood and you better yeah. back up because and all this talking. All the sibling stuff them. is just so, I mean, I don't even have siblings, but I know like I would definitely put like a fake rattlesnake in my little brother's bed. Oh, yeah. if I was. Oh my gosh, did I, 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 I feel like I have to apologize to my sister every time I see her because this, we did this on, where were we on? Oh, the Graham Norton show. Cause I'm a big like Brit fan. So we were on the show and you know, they pick people out of the audience and they're like, okay, what's the worst thing you ever did to your sibling? And I'm like, my sibling's right here. When we were little, we used to ride the subway. And I told her if she touched the knobs, like they used to have these knobs that said where the train was going you know, and they turn it at the end from one end of the line to the other end of the line. I told her if she touched the knob, it would say we were going to hell and the train was going to go straight to hell. And she better not touch anything. <laughs> and oh, no. she was terrified for years that this was going to happen. And I, yeah, I called it out on the show and Graham Norton said I was, I won't say, I won't curse, but he said I was the B word. And then it never got aired on the show. They cut it out. I was like, that's hilarious. Oh no! Even I was too mean for Graham Norton. Okay. <laughs> oh, poor sister. Sorry, Alice, if she's listening. I'm sorry. I was a bad big sister. Right. She'd so, believe anything, though. She would totally believe anything. Like my mother didn't do this on purpose to mess with me. Like she just was trying to be cute. But when I was little, I saw like we we're getting on an elevator, and I saw this sign with like a fire and somebody going down the stairs. It's like, oh, mom, what does that mean? She says, oh, it means if there is a fire, you have to go down the stairs because if you're in the elevator when there's a fire, you'll be, get baked up like the gingerbread man. <laughs> and so I was afraid of elevators for about fifteen years. <laughs> But they never know where we're going to traumatize our children. Or no, siblings. I just didn't want her touching stuff, you know, like yeah. I thought, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you have any, like, you know, looking at this movie in hindsight now, do you have any criticisms that jumped out at you that you wish it could, you know, get redone or ways that we could probably be better if we were doing it now? Like I, I was definitely uncomfortable with some of the sexual abuse the allegations or how that was handled yeah. the ambiguity there that was definitely weird for me it was weird and I to me that seems very dated I feel like that definitely seems like of the time that's how yeah. they handled those things and and that's not an excuse by any means yeah but I think that watching it now it, it looks like oh my gosh why didn't they whatever but then on the other hand in certainly when the film was made and definitely when it's supposed to have taken place in the 50s, mm -hmm. early 60s, that was how people handled those things. You know, I don't necessarily mean by going to a voodoo person or whatever, yeah. although maybe they did, you know, that's. <laughs> sure, someone did. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I do a little speech about, you know, in my class about voodoo myths and magic, about how zombies were really just a, a 
bunch of drugs related to the puffer fish and Japanese cuisine that you would give to paralyze somebody if they were an objectionable person in society. So it was like, I couldn't call the police or I couldn't call the government to get this horrible person who might be a, you know, child molester, evil, you know, bastard person. I, there's nothing I can do. So I'll use this spell or I'll feed them this thing and that will take care of them for now. So I think, yeah, the reality of it is a lot of people did go through that. But I think if you were remaking it now, you would definitely need some sort of different kind of treatment of that because she doesn't really, there's nowhere to go, which, you know, unfortunately I think is the reality for a lot of people in that situation. You know, that's that's what we were talking about before, where, you know, she's sort of forced to turn to voodoo because they're really everybody's like, don't tell anybody, don't tell it everything she sees. Don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Like, it's just like all about the secrets and all about keeping these things under wraps. And uh, that's how people lived for a very long time. Yeah. And I, I didn't really feel bad when Samuel L. Jackson got <laughs> shot at the end. Like, he was no. a very good husband or dad. Even if he like no, loved her, but it was wasn't. complex. Yeah, but he was still a shitty husband. He was. He really was. Yeah. I I he did do a great job with it though. I do have they all oh, yeah. do such a great job. I'm like, mm-hmm. that's I think the other reason I chose this when you asked me, I was like, just the acting in this is superb. I mean, I love Samuel Jackson, but in this, I'm like, I can't stand this guy. Oh yeah. He's, <laughs> he's so he's so skeezy. I love seeing um, it was funny to me because I'm a big fan of Charmed like you know good witch and I saw Debbie Morgan in there and I remember her oh, she's yes. like she's on charmed as like some seer and so I'm like was that like kind of like a sly joke on the part of charmed is making her like this prophetic Probably. demon person <laughs> and like oh okay now I get where she was in there I forgot that I completely forgot that yes. I mean I'm old school I remember Debbie Morgan when she premiered on all my children she oh. was like the first black regular character she was a teenager that's that's how old I am Sorry. I'm flashing back. I used to watch um, Days of Our Lives with my grandma from Alabama and watching like Days of Our Lives. And I just remember the the uh, storyline where Marlena was possessed by the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what is this show, Granny? Oh, the things that I would love to daytime. do a show like that one of these days. You know what I mean? There's so many of those things. I have a friend who named her son Ethan after passions. <laughs> Oh, passions, man. I only I know. know about pa- passions like via Buffy because there's so many passions jokes on Buffy. Oh, it was so good. It was hilarious. You know, I heard you talking about that. We're going to do a supernatural show too on pop of culture. I heard you talking about like so bad, but so good. Oh my God. If you want to talk, if you want somebody to talk about supernatural for several hours, I am your person. All right. All right. Um, our, I'll take you up on that. Yes. This, is, this will you know, be a spoiler, but like our next guest on here is going to be Ruth Connell who plays Rowena. And so she's going to come on and talk about playing, you know, the best witch on Supernatural. And so. Fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Yes, That's great. Cool. I mean, they do some interesting stuff with voodoo on Supernatural. They don't really go into it much, but there's a they use what they call goofer dust a lot. And I is that my correct in saying that that's just cemetery dirt or am I getting? You can't. I mean. Yes, cemetery dirt is goofer dust, but I have seen recipes that's like cemetery dirt with also hot foot powder stuff in it. So like mm-hmm. guinea pepper or grains of paradise, red pepper, black pepper, those kinds of things. Yeah, they do a really good, interesting uh, episode where they have like they do their version of like the Robert Johnson story. Oh, there's the devil at the crossroads yeah, episode. Called, All right. It's called Crossroad Blues. It's episode eight season two okay (laughs) but yeah they have a lot about like hellhounds and devil deals at the crossroads and they use music really well in that episode i really actually like they do robert johnson sweet i love there was a whole show in that too i have a friend eric davis who people know from you know his writing He's written a lot over the years. I think he's been an advisor on a lot of different things over the years, but he's got a Led Zeppelin book where there's a whole giant chapter about like the black dog in mythology oh, yeah. and also Led Zeppelin. I was like, this is great. I love it. 
<laughs> the tragic thing with Supernatural is like Led Zeppelin's like canonically like Dean Winchester's like favorite band, but they can't. They're a CW show, so they can't actually afford to ever get oh, Led Zeppelin no. rights. <laughs> Also, like they have all like 20 episodes named after Zeppelin songs, so they've never wow. actually been able to play oh, it no. on the show. Oh, no. But they got Carry On Wayward Son, and so that's you know, yeah, they apparently I heard they use that a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like their anthem. And I was at Comic Con a few years ago where Kansas, like, as a surprise at Comic Con, oh, they came wow. out and played Carry On Wayward Son. It was like the coolest moment of my Comic Con life, <laughs> but yeah, I'm a big supernatural nerd <laughs> all right Yay. but like do you have any like final thoughts about eve's bayou like favorite moments or comments on any of the other performances i i love elzora i just oh, yeah. think that she is amazing in that role i mean it was one of those things where i grew up watching her and other things over the years but I had never expected anything like that. I think she's got all the nuances in it, all the delivery of the lines. It's like, she's just perfect. She sort of transforms into that Elsora character and becomes a different person. And to me, it's, that's the real hallmark of an actress. You know what I mean? She's so known for being this diva and all the rest of it, but then when she needs to get down and dirty, you know, voodoo swamp witch, she's in it, literally. And a hundred percent. So, yeah, I I just adore that performance. And and Journey Smollett. I mean that that's one of the best performances by a young actor ever that I've ever seen. I started out on Broadway when I was probably a little bit older than her. You know, eleven or twelve. And it's hard to get a good performance out of a kid. You know, and uh, she does such an amazing job of it. And she's grown into such a wonderful, now I sound like all those old farts, but she really <laughs> has grown into such a wonderful young actress over the yeah. years. And I'm glad to still see her, you know, doing really fantastic things. So I think that just the only other thing I'd just like to reiterate that when you're watching it, that there are a lot of things that are very realistic and some of it's not pretty. And, uh, you know, there's there's also some things that are wild, but that's because it's a Hollywood yeah. movie. Yeah, I do like that, like, Elzora and Eve have that great conversation. She's like, well, where's my voodoo doll? She's like, I'm not going to make you a doll. There's no doll. Yeah, yeah, that's it. There's no doll. Take in the graveyard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, it's realistic on that, you know. So that's, yeah. again, they were right on. All sorts of symbolism here with snakes and with the name Eve that we could, you know, fruit of knowledge, all sorts of subtleties there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that in, you know, whatever, in connection with all the Lovecraft country stuff. But yeah, you know, it's got that too. There is all of this. She definitely is the, you know, whatever, one who does what she's not supposed to. Oh, yeah. You know, like Eve taking the bite of the apple, even the thing with the apple where she's got the the whole thing about her taking the apples. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to steal a pineapple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for anyone looking, where can people find you online or for the pop culture show? Is that live yet or is it still being uh, produced? We have two episodes up okay. there live. We go every other week. So bi-monthly. Uh, there's another one air. There will be another one aired by the time you wear this. So. <laughs> but they can find me at LilithDorsey.com. That's my website. And there's links there to the Pop of Culture show. But you can find that on my YouTube channel. Uh, you can go to my blog, Voodoo Universe. You can check out any number of my new books. I have a new book about water magic that just came out, uh, what, two weeks ago? <laughs> I'm really I'm really excited to get to the that one once I finish like the five books I have piled up and shaming me next to my yeah, yeah and I'm so glad you read Arisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens I'm so amazed it's on its third printing already I can't it's... recommend that one highly enough to people it was just such a really wonderful exploration of these goddesses that you just don't get a lot of information on other places and coming from an authentic place that you know we're oh, trying to commodify you. it thank you no it's just amazing to me it's been number one on the goddess list and the you know tribal religions I'm just like what like I have a number one book like and it came out back in May so the fact that people are still reading it and discovering it just makes me so happy 
Yeah. And I'm like, wait, Beyonce has like goddess symbolism and all that. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like Googling pictures of Beyonce. I'm like, oh, oh cool. She does. She does. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a whole episode is like Beyonce and ocean energy. It was yeah. a very cool thing to talk about someday. Yeah. I like this. we got lots of episodes in the works. All, yeah. right. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to episode six of the Real Magic Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please like, review, rate, subscribe, tell all your friends. You can follow us on Twitter at Real Magic Pod or across all social media there. If you like me and my work, you can find me on the Mary Sue. Just look for Jess Mason. Or you can follow me on Twitter via at Fangirling Jess. As you heard me tell Lilith, our next guest is one I am so excited about, especially because as I'm recording this, I'm waiting for the Supernatural series finale. And if you're like me and you're going to miss the show, you're going to be really happy to hear from one of my favorite people from the show, Ruth Connell, who plays Rowena McLeod, the baddest witch out there and also the queen of hell now. I'm so excited to talk to Ruthie and talk about my favorite show and magic. So... See you on the other side. Until then, carry on, my little